Chapter Nine, Part Two, of the Lost Girl, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. So we go together in the cab," said Madame to him. Then, "Goodbye, my dear Miss Ofton. Perhaps we shall meet once more. Who knows? My hat is with you, my dear." She put her arms round Alvina and kissed her a little theatrically. The cousin looked on, very much aloof. Chicho stood by. "'Come then, Chicho," said Madame. "'Good-bye,' said Alvina to him. "'You'll come again, won't you?' She looked at him from her strained, pale face. "'All right,' he said, shaking her hand loosely. It sounded hopelessly indefinite. "'You will come, won't you?' she repeated, staring at him with strained, unseeing blue eyes. "'All right,' he said, ducking and turning away. She stood quite still for a moment, quite lost. Then she went on with her cousin to her cab, home to the funeral tea. "'Good-bye!' Madame fluttered a black-edged handkerchief. But Chicho, most comfortable in his four-wheeler, kept hidden. The funeral tea, with its baked meats and sweets, was a terrible affair. But it came to an end, as everything comes to an end, and Miss Pinnegar and Alvina were left alone in the emptiness of Manchester House. "'If you weren't here, Miss Pinnegar, I should be quite by myself,' said Alvina, blanched and strained. "'Yes, and so should I without you,' said Miss Pinnegar, doggedly. They looked at each other, and that night both slept in Miss Pinnegar's bed, out of sheer terror of the empty house. During the days following the funeral, no one could have been more tiresome than Alvina. James had left everything to his daughter, excepting some rights in the workshop, which were Miss Pinnegar's. But the question was, how much did everything amount to? There was something less than a hundred pounds in the bank. There was a mortgage on Manchester House. There were substantial bills owing on account of the endeavour. Alvina had about a hundred pounds left from the insurance money, when all funeral expenses were paid. Of that she was sure, and of nothing else. For the rest, she was almost driven mad by people coming to talk to her. The lawyer came, the clergyman came, her cousin came, the old, stout, prosperous tradesman of Woodhouse came, Mr. May came, Miss Pinnegar came, and they all had schemes and they all had advice. The chief plan was that the theatre should be sold up, and that Manchester House should be sold, reserving a lease on the top floor, where Miss Pinnegar's workrooms were, that Miss Pinnegar and Alvina should move into a small house. Miss Pinnegar keeping the workroom, Alvina giving music lessons, that the two women should be partners in the workshop. There were other plans, of course. There was a faction against the chapel faction, which favoured the plan sketched out above. The theatre faction, including Mr. May and some of the more florid tradesmen, favoured the risking of everything in the endeavour. Alvina was to be the proprietress of the endeavour. She was to run it on some sort of successful lines, and abandon all other enterprise. Minor plans included the election of Alvina to the post of parish nurse at six pounds a month, a small private school, a small haberdashery shop, and a position in the office of her cousin's Narborough business. To one and all Alvina answered with a tantalising, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know, I can't say yet, I shall see, I shall see, till one and all became angry with her. They were all so benevolent and all so sure that they were proposing the very best thing she could do, 
and they were all nettled, even indignant that she did not jump at their proposals. She listened to them all. She even invited their advice. Continually she said, "'Well, what do you think of it?' And she repeated the chapel plan to the theatre group, the theatre plan to the chapel party, the nursing to the pianoforte proposers, the haberdashery shop to the private school advocates. "'Tell me what you think,' she said repeatedly. And they all told her they thought their plan was best. And bit by bit she told every advocate the proposal of every other advocate. "'Well, Lawyer Beebe thinks,' and, "'Well, now, Mr. Clay, the minister, advises,' and so on and so on, till it was all buzzing through thirty benevolent and officious heads, and thirty benevolently officious wills were striving to plant each one its own particular scheme of benevolence. And Alvina, naive and pathetic, egged them all on in their strife, without even knowing what she was doing. One thing only was certain. Some obstinate will in her own self absolutely refused to have her mind made up. She would not have her mind made up for her, and she would not make it up for herself. And so everybody began to say, I'm getting tired of her. You talk to her, and you get no forrader. She slips off to something else. I'm not going to bother with her any more. In truth, Woodhouse was in a fever for three weeks or more, arranging Alvina's unarrangeable future for her. Offers of charity were innumerable for three weeks. Meanwhile the lawyer went on with the proving of the will, and the drawing up of a final account of James's property. Mr. May went on with the endeavour, although Alvina did not go down to play. Miss Pinnegar went on with the work-girls, and Alvina went on unmaking her mind. Chicho did not come during the first week. Alvina had a postcard from Madame, from Cheshire, rather far off but such was the buzz and excitement over her material future, such a fever was worked up round about her, that Alvina, the petty propertied heroine of the moment, was quite carried away in a storm of schemes and benevolent suggestions. She answered Madame's postcard, but did not give much thought to the Natchaquitawaras. As a matter of fact, she was enjoying a real moment of importance, there at the centre of Woodhouse's rather domineering benevolence, a benevolence which she unconsciously but systematically frustrated. All this scheming for selling out and making reservations and hanging on and fixing prices and getting private bids for Manchester House and for the endeavour, the excitement of forming a limited company to run the endeavour, of seeing a lawyer about the sale of Manchester House and the auctioneer about the sale of the furniture, of receiving men who wanted to pick up the machines upstairs cheap, and of keeping everything dangling, deciding nothing, putting everything off till she had seen somebody else, this for the moment fascinated her, went to her head. It was not until the second week had passed that her excitement began to merge into irritation, and not until the third week had gone by that she began to feel herself tangled in an asphyxiating web of indecision and her heart began to sing, because Chicho had never turned up. Now she would have given anything to see the Natchaquitawaras again, but she did not know where they were. Now she began to loathe the excitement of her property, doubtfully hers, every stick of it. Now she would give anything to get away from Woodhouse, from the horrible buzz and entanglement of her sordid affairs. Now again her wild recklessness came over her, she suddenly said she was going away somewhere, she would not say where, she cashed all the money she could, 
a hundred and twenty-five pounds, she took the train to Cheshire, to the last address of the Natchaquee Tawaras. She followed them to Stockport and back to Chinley, and there she was stuck for the night. Next day she dashed back almost to Woodhouse, and swerved round to Sheffield. There, in that black town, thank heaven, she saw their announcement on the wall. She took a taxi to their theatre and then on to their lodgings. The first thing she saw was Louis, in his shirt-sleeves, on the landing above. She laughed with excitement and pleasure. She seemed another woman. Madame looked up, almost annoyed when she entered. "'I couldn't keep away from you, madame,' she cried. "'Evidently,' said madame. Madame was darning socks for the young men. She was a wonderful mother for them, sewed for them, cooked for them, looked after them most carefully. Not many minutes was Madame idle. "'Do you mind?' said Alvina. Madame darned for some moments without answering. "'And how is everything at Woodhouse?' she asked. "'I couldn't bear it any longer. I couldn't bear it. So I collected all the money I could and ran away. Nobody knows where I am.' Madame looked up with bright, black, censorious eyes at the flushed girl opposite. Alvina had a certain strangeness and brightness which Madame did not know, and a frankness which the Frenchwoman mistrusted, but found disarming. "'And all the business, the, the will and all?' said Madame. "'They're still fussing about it. And there is some money?' "'I've got a hundred pounds here,' laughed Alvina. "'What there will be when everything is settled, I don't know, but... Not very much, I'm sure of that. How much do you think? A thousand pounds? Oh, it's just possible, you know, but it's just as likely there won't be another penny. Madame nodded slowly, as always when she did her calculations. And if there is nothing, what do you intend? said Madame. I don't know, said Alvina brightly. And if there is something? I don't know either. "'But I thought, if you would let me play for you, "'I could keep myself for some time with my own money. "'You said perhaps I might be with the Natchiquitawaras. "'I wish you would let me.' "'Madame bent her head so that nothing showed "'but the bright black folds of her hair. "'Then she looked up, with a slow, subtle, rather jeering smile. "'Chicho didn't come to see you, eh?' "'No,' said Alvina. "'Yet he promised.' "'Again Madame smiled sardonically. "'Do you call it a promise?' she said. "'You are easy to be satisfied with a word. "'A hundred pounds, no more. "'A hundred and twenty. Where is it? "'In my bag at the station, in notes. "'And I've got a little here.' "'Alvina opened her purse and took out some little gold and silver. "'At the station!' exclaimed Madame, smiling grimly. "'Then perhaps you have nothing.' "'Oh, I think it's quite safe, don't you?' "'Yes, maybe, since it is England. "'And you think a hundred and twenty pounds is enough? "'What for?' "'To satisfy Chicho.' "'I wasn't thinking of him,' cried Alvina. "'No,' said Madame, ironically. "'I can propose it to him.' "'Wait one moment.' "'She went to the door and called Chicho. "'He entered, looking not very good-tempered. "'Be so good, my dear,' said Madame to him, "'to go to the station and fetch Miss Ofton's little bag.' "'You have got the ticket, have you?' Alvina handed the luggage ticket to Madame. "'Midland Railway,' said Madame. "'And, Chicho, you are listening? "'Mind, there is a hundred and twenty pounds of Miss Houghton's money in the bag. "'You hear? Mind it is not lost.' "'It's all I have,' said Alvina. "'For the time, for the time, till the will is proved, "'it is all the cash she has,' 
So mind doubly, you hear. All right, said Chicho. Tell him what sort of a bag, Miss Houghton, said Madame. Alvina told him. He ducked and went. Madame listened for his final departure. Then she nodded sagely at Alvina. Take off your hat and coat, my dear. Soon we will have tea, when Chich returns. Let him think. Let him think what he likes. So much money is certain. Perhaps there will be more. Let him think. It will make all the difference that there is so much cash. Yes, so much. But would it really make a difference to him? cried Alvina. Oh, my dear, exclaimed Madame, why should it not? We are on earth, where we must eat. We are not in paradise. If it were a thousand pounds, then he would want very badly to marry you. But a hundred and twenty is better than a blow to the eye, eh? Why, sure. It's dreadful, though, said Alvina. Oh, la, la, dreadful. If it was Max, who is sentimental, then no, the money is nothing. But all the others, why, you see, they are men, and they know which side to butter their bread. Men are like cats, my dear. They don't like their bread without butter. Why should they? Nor do I. Nor do I. Can I help with the darning? said Alvina. Eh? I shall give you Chicho's socks, yes? He pushes holes in the toes, you see. Madame poked two fingers through the hole in the toe of a red and black sock, and smiled a little maliciously at Alvina. I don't mind which sock I darn, she said. No, you don't. Well, then, I give you another. But if you like, I will speak to him. What to say? asked Alvina. To say that you have so much money and hope to have more, and that you like him. Yes? Am I right? You like him very much, eh? Is it so? And then what? said Alvina. That he should tell me if he should like to marry you also. Quite simply. What? Yes? No, said Alvina. Don't say anything. Not yet. Here? Not yet. Not yet. All right, not yet, then. You will see. Alvina sat darning the sock and smiling at her own shamelessness. The point that amused her most of all was the fact that she was not by any means sure she wanted to marry him. There was Madame spinning her web, like a plump, prolific black spider. There was Chicho, the unrestful fly. And there was herself, who didn't know in the least what she was doing. There sat two of them, Madame and herself, darning socks in a stuffy little bedroom with a gas-fire, as if they had been born to it. And after all, Woodhouse wasn't fifty miles away. Madame went downstairs to get tea ready. Wherever she was, she superintended the cooking and the preparation of meals for her young men, scrupulous and quick. She called Alvina downstairs. Chicho came in with the bag. "'See, my dear, that your money is safe,' said Madame. Alvina unfastened her bag and counted the crisp white notes. "'And now,' said Madame, "'I shall lock it in my little bank, yes, where it will be safe, "'and I shall give you a receipt which the young men will witness.' The party sat down to tea in the stuffy sitting-room. "'Now, boys,' said Madame, "'what do you say?' Shall Miss Houghton join the Natchekitawas? Shall she be our pianist? The eyes of the four young men rested on Alvina. Max, as being the responsible party, looked business-like. Louis was tender, Geoffrey round-eyed and inquisitive, Chicho furtive. With great pleasure, said Max, but can the Natchekitawas afford to pay a pianist for themselves? 
No, said madame, and no, I think not. Miss Ofton will come for one month to prove, and in that time she shall pay for herself. Yes? So she fancies it. Can we pay her expenses? said Max. No, said Alvina. Let me pay everything for myself for a month. I should like to be with you, awfully. She looked across with a look half mischievous, half beseeching at the erect Max. He bowed as he sat at table. I think we shall all be honoured, he said. Certainly, said Louis, bowing also over his teacup. Geoffrey inclined his head, and Chicho lowered his eyelashes in indication of agreement. Now then, said Madame briskly, we are all agreed. Tonight we will have a bottle of wine on it. Yes, gentlemen? What did you say? Chianti, eh? They all bowed above the table. And Miss Ofton shall have her professional name, eh? Because we cannot say Miss Ofton. What? Do call me Alvina, said Alvina. Alvina, Alvina. No, excuse me, my dear, I don't like it. I don't like this V sound. Tonight we shall find a name. After tea they inquired for a room for Alvina. There was none in the house, but two doors away was another decent lodging-house, where a bedroom on the top floor was found for her. "'I think you are very well here,' said Madame. "'Quite nice,' said Alvina, looking round the hideous little room, and remembering her other term of probation as a maternity nurse. She dressed as attractively as possible, in her new dress of black voile, and imitating Madame, she put four jewelled rings on her fingers. As a rule she only wore the morning ring of black enamel and diamond, which had been always on Miss Frost's finger. Now she left off this, and took four diamond rings and one good sapphire. She looked at herself in her mirror as she had never done before, really interested in the effect she made, and in her dress she pinned a voluble old ruby brooch. Then she went down to Madame's house. Madame eyed her shrewdly, with just a touch of jealousy, the eternal jealousy that must exist between the plump, pale partridge of a French woman, whose black hair is so glossy and tidy, whose black eyes are so acute, whose black dress is so neat and chic, and the rather thin Englishwoman, in soft voile, with soft, rather loose brown hair, and demure, blue-grey eyes. "'Oh, a difference! What a difference! When you have a little more flesh, then—' Madame made a slight click with her tongue. "'What a good brooch, eh?' Madame fingered the brooch. "'Old paste! Old paste! Antique!' No, said Alvina, they are real rubies. It was my great-grandmother's. Do you mean it? Real? Are you sure? I think I am quite sure. Madame scrutinised the jewels with a fine eye. Hmm, she said. And Alvina did not know whether she was sceptical, or jealous, or admiring, or really impressed. And the diamonds are real? said Madame, making Alvina hold up her hands. I've always understood so, said Alvina. Madame scrutinised and slowly nodded her head. Then she looked into Alvina's eyes, really a little jealous. "'Another four thousand francs there,' she said, nodding sagely. "'Really?' said Alvina. "'For sure. It's enough. It's enough.' And there was a silence between the two women. The young men had been out shopping for the supper. Louis, who knew where to find French and German stuff, came in with bundles. Chicho returned with a couple of flasks. Geoffrey with sundry moist papers of edibles. Alvina helped Madame to put the anchovies and sardines and tunny and ham and salami on various plates. She broke off a bit of fern from one of the flower-pots to stick in the pork-pie. 
She set the table with its ugly knives and forks and glasses. All the time her rings sparkled, her red brooch sent out beams. She laughed and was gay, she was quick, and she flattered Madame by being very deferential to her. Whether she was herself or not, in the hideous, common, stuffy sitting-room of the lodging-house, she did not know or care, but she felt excited and gay. She knew the young men were watching her. Max gave his assistance wherever possible. Geoffrey watched her rings, half spellbound. But Alvina was concerned only to flatter the plump, white, soft vanity of Madame. She carefully chose for Madame the finest plate, the clearest glass, the whitest hafted knife, the most delicate fork, all of which Madame saw with acute eyes. At the theatre the same, Alvina played for Kishwagin, only for Kishwagin, and Madame had the time of her life. "'You know, my dear,' she said afterward to Alvina, "'I understand sympathy in music. Music goes straight to the heart.' And she kissed Alvina on both cheeks, throwing her arms round her neck dramatically. "'I'm so glad,' said the wily Alvina. And the young men stirred uneasily, and smiled furtively. They hurried home to the famous supper. Madame sat at one end of the table, Alvina at the other. Madame had Max and Louis by her side, Alvina had Chicho and Geoffrey. Chicho was on Alvina's right hand, a delicate hint. They began with hors d'oeuvre and tumblers three parts full of Chianti. Alvina wanted to water her wine, but was not allowed to insult the sacred liquid. There was a spirit of great liveliness and conviviality. Madame became paler, her eyes blacker. With the wine she drank, her voice became a little raucous. Tonight, she said, the Nachiquitawaras make their feast of affiliation. The white daughter has entered the tribe of the Hirondelle, swallows that pass from land to land and build their nests between roof and wall. A new swallow, a new Rouen from the tents of the pale face, from the lodges of the north and the tribe of the Yangis. Madame's black eyes glared with a kind of wild triumph down the table at Alvina. Nameless, without having a name, comes the maiden with the red jewels, dark-hearted with the red beams, wine from the pale-faced shadows, drunken wine for Kishwagan, strange wine for the braves in their nostrils. Vali, à vous. Madame lifted her glass. Vali, drink to her. Bois à elle. She thrust her glass forwards in the air. The young men thrust their glasses up towards Alvina in a cluster. She could see their mouths all smiling, their teeth white as they cried in their throats. Vali, vali, boire à vous. Chicho was near to her. Under the table he laid his hand on her knee. Quickly she put forward her hand to protect herself. He took her hand and looked at her along the glass as he drank. She saw his throat move as the wine went down it. He put down his glass, still watching her. Vali, he said in his throat, then across the table. Here, Gigi, Viali, le petit chemin, comment? Me prends-tu? L'allée! There came a great burst of laughter from Louis. It is good, it is good, he cried. Oh, madame, Viali, it is Italian for the little way, the alley, that is too rich. Max went off into a high and ribald laugh. 
L'allée Italienne, he said, and shouted with laughter. Allez au Avenue, what does it matter? cried Madame in French, so long as it is a good journey. Here Geoffrey at last saw the joke. With a strange, determined flourish, he filled his glass, cocking up his elbow. A toi, Chich, et bon voyage, he said, and then he tilted up his chin and swallowed in great throatfuls. Certainly, certainly, cried Madame, to thy good journey, my Chicho, for thou art not a great traveller. Na, pour ça, y a plus d'un voy, said Geoffrey. During this passage in French, Alvina sat with very bright eyes, looking from one to another, and not understanding. But she knew it was something improper on her account. Her eyes had a bright, slightly bewildered look as she turned from one face to another. Chicho had let go her hand, and was wiping his lips with his fingers. He too was a little self-conscious. I say, de cette éternelle voix italienne, said Madame. Courage, courage au chemin d'Angleterre. I say, de cette éternelle voix roc, said Chicho, looking round. Madame suddenly pulled herself together. They will not have my name. They will call you Allais, she said to Alvina. Is it good? Will it do? Quite, said Alvina, and she could not understand why Gigi, and then the others after him, went off into a shout of laughter. She kept looking round with bright, puzzled eyes. Her face was slightly flushed and tender-looking. She looked naive, young. Then you will become one of the tribe of Nachakitawara, of the name Alea, yes? Yes, said Alvina, and obey the strict rules of the tribe. Do you agree? Yes. Then listen. Madame primmed and preened herself like a black pigeon, and darted glances out of her black eyes. We are one tribe, one nation. Say it. We are one tribe, one nation, repeated Alvina. Say all, cried Madame. We are one tribe, one nation, they shouted, with varying accent. Good, said Madame. And no nation do we know but the nation of the Hirondelle. No nation do we know but the nation of the Hirondelle, came the ragged chant of strong male voices, resonant and gay with mockery. Huron, Hirondelle, means swallows, said Madame. Yes, I know, said Alvina. So, you know. Well, then, we know no nation but the Hirondelle. We have no law but Huron law. We have no law but Huron law sang the response in a deep sardonic chant we have no lawgiver except kishwegan we have no lawgiver except kishwegan they sang sonorous we have no home but the tent of kishwegan we have no home but the tent of kishwegan there is no good but the good of nachakitawara there is no good but the good of Nachakitawara. We are the Hirondelle. We are the Hirondelle. We are Kishwegan. We are Kishwegan. We are Mondagua. We are Mondagua. We are Atonqua. We are Atonqua. We are Pacohuila. We are Pacohuila. We are Wolgachka. We are Wolgachka. We are Alleye. We are Alleye. La musica, Pacoquila, la musica, cried Madame, starting to her feet 
and sounding frenzied. Chicho got up quickly and took his mandoline from its case. Ah, ay, ay, began Madame, with a long, faint wail, and on the wailing mandoline the music started. She began to dance a slight but intense dance. Then she waved for a partner and set up a tarantella wail. Louis threw off his coat and sprang to tarantella attention. Chicho rang out the peculiar tarantella, and Madame and Louis danced in the tight space. Brava, brava, cried the others, when Madame sank into her place, and they crowded forward to kiss her hand. One after the other they kissed her fingers, whilst she laid her left hand languidly on the head of one man after another, as she sat, slightly panting. Chicho, however, did not come up, but sat faintly twanging the mandoline. Nor did Alvina leave her place. Pacohuila, cried Madame, with an imperious gesture. Allez, come! Chicho laid down his mandoline, and went to kiss the fingers of Kishwagen. Alvina also went forward. Madame held out her hand. Alvina kissed it. Madame laid her hand on the head of Alvina. This is the squaw Allaire. This is the daughter of Kishwagen, she said, in her Tawara manner. And where is the brave of Allais? Where is the arm that upholds the daughter of Kishwagen? Which of the swallows spreads his wings over the gentle head of the new one? Pacohuila, said Louis. Pacohuila, 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 said the others. Spread soft wings, spread dark roofed wings, Pacohuila, said Kishwagen. And Chicho, in his shirt sleeves, solemnly spread his arms. Stoop, stoop, Allaire, beneath the wings of Pacohuila, said Kishwagen, faintly pressing Alvina on the shoulder. Alvina stooped and crouched under the right arm of Pacohuila. Has the bird flown home? chanted Kishwagen, to one of the strains of their music. The bird is home, chanted the men. Is the nest warm? chanted Kishwagen. The nest is warm. Does the he-bird stoop? He stoops. Who takes Alay? Pacohuila. Chicho gently stooped and raised Alvina to her feet. Cessa, said Madame, kissing her. And now, children, unless the Sheffield policeman will knock at our door, we must retire to our wigwams all. Chicho was watching Alvina. Madame made him a secret, imperative gesture that he should accompany the young woman. You have your key, Alay? she said. Did I have a key? said Alvina. Madame smiled subtly as she produced a latch-key. Kishwega must open your doors for you all, she said. Then, with a slight flourish, she presented the key to Chicho. I give it to him, yes? she smiled, with her subtle, malicious smile. Chicho, smiling brightly and keeping his head ducked, took the key. Alvina looked brightly, as if bewildered, from one to another. "'Also the light,' said Madame, producing a pocket flashlight, which she triumphantly handed to Chicho. Alvina watched him. She noticed how he dropped his head forward from his straight, strong shoulders. How beautiful that was, the strong, forward-inclining nape and back of the head. It produced a kind of dazed submission in her, the drugged sense of unknown beauty. "'And so good night, Allais. Bonne nuit, fille des terroirs. Madame kissed her, and darted black, unaccountable looks at her. 
Each brave also kissed her hand with a profound salute. Then the men shook hands warmly with Chicho, murmuring to him. He did not put on his hat nor his coat, but ran round as he was to the neighbouring house with her, and opened the door. She entered and he followed, flashing on the light. So she climbed weakly up the dusty, drab stairs, he following. When she came to her door she turned and looked at him. His face was scarcely visible, it seemed, and yet so strange and beautiful. It was the unknown beauty which almost killed her. "'You aren't coming,' she quavered. He gave an odd, half-gay, half-mocking twitch of his thick, dark brows, and began to laugh silently. Then he nodded again, laughing at her boldly, carelessly, triumphantly, like the dark southerner he was. Her instinct was to defend herself. When suddenly she found herself in the dark, she gasped, and as she gasped he quite gently put her inside her room, and closed the door, keeping one arm round her all the time. She felt his heavy, muscular predominance. So he took her in both arms, powerful, mysterious, horrible in the pitch-dark. Yet the sense of the unknown beauty of him weighed her down like some force. If for one moment she could have escaped from that black spell of his beauty, she would have been free. But she could not. He was awful to her, shameless, so that she died under his shamelessness, his smiling, progressive shamelessness. Yet she could not see him ugly. If only she could, for one second, have seen him ugly, he would not have killed her and made her his slave as he did. But the spell was on her, of his darkness and unfathomed handsomeness, and he killed her. He simply took her and assassinated her. How she suffered, no one can tell. Yet, all the time, his lustrous, dark beauty, unbearable. When later she pressed her face on his chest and cried, he held her gently as if she was a child, but took no notice, and she felt in the darkness that he smiled. It was utterly dark, and she knew he smiled, and she began to get hysterical. But he only kissed her, his smile deepening to a heavy laughter, silent and invisible, but sensible, as he carried her away once more. He intended her to be his slave, she knew, and he seemed to throw her down and suffocate her like a wave and she could have fought, if only the sense of his dark, rich handsomeness had not numbed her like a venom, so she was suffocated in his passion. In the morning when it was light he turned and looked at her from under his long black lashes, a long, steady, cruel, faintly smiling look from his tawny eyes, searching her as if to see whether she was still alive, and she looked back at him, heavy-eyed and half-subjected. He smiled slightly at her, rose, and left her, and she turned her face to the wall, feeling beaten, yet not quite beaten to death. Save for the fatal numbness of her love for him, she could still have escaped him, but she lay inert, as if envenomed, he wanted to make her his slave. When she went down to the Natchekee Tawaras for breakfast, she found them waiting for her. She was rather frail and tender-looking, with wondering eyes that showed she had been crying. "'Come, daughter of the Tawaras,' said Madame, brightly to her. "'We have been waiting for you. "'Good morning, and all happiness, eh? "'Look, it is a gift-day for you.' Madame smilingly led Alvina to her place. Beside her plate was a bunch of violets, a bunch of carnations, a pair of exquisite bead moccasins, and a pair of fine doe-skin gloves, delicately decorated, 
with feather-work on the cuffs. The slippers were from Kishwegen, the gloves were from Mondagua, the carnations from Atonqua, the violets from Wolgatchka, all to the daughter of the Tawara's Alee, as it said on the little cards. "'The gift of Pacahuila, you know,' said Madame, smiling. "'The brothers of Pacahuila are your brothers.' One by one they went to her, and each one laid the back of her fingers against his forehead, saying in turn, "'I am your brother Mondagua, Alay. I am your brother Atonqua, Alay. I am your brother Wolgachka, Alay. Best brother, you know,' so spoke Geoffrey, looking at her with large, almost solemn eyes of affection. Alvina smiled a little wanly, wondering where she was. It was all so solemn. Was it all mockery, play-acting? She felt bitterly inclined to cry. Meanwhile Madame came in with the coffee, which she always made herself, and the party sat down to breakfast. Chicho sat on Alvina's right, but he seemed to avoid looking at her or speaking to her. All the time he looked across the table, with the half-asserted, knowing look in his eyes, at Gigi, and all the time he addressed himself to Gigi, with the throaty, rich, plangent quality in his voice that Alvina could not bear it seemed terrible to her, and he spoke in French, and the two men seemed to be exchanging unspeakable communications, so that Alvina, for all her wistfulness and subjectedness, was at last seriously offended. She rose as soon as possible from table. In her own heart she wanted attention and public recognition from Chicho, none of which she got. She returned to her own house, to her own room, anxious to tidy everything, not wishing to have her landlady in the room, and she half expected Chicho to come to speak to her. As she was busy washing a garment in the bowl, her landlady knocked and entered. She was a rough and rather beery-looking Yorkshirewoman, not attractive. "'Oh, you'n made your bed, ain't ye?' "'Yes,' said Alvina. "'I've done everything. I see yan. Yon been sharp.' Alvina did not answer. "'Seems you're doing your sin a bit of wishing.' Still Alvina didn't answer. "'You can ing it in the backyard.' "'I think it'll dry here,' said Alvina. "'There's no much drying up here. "'Send us out when it's ready. "'You'll be up and wanting it. "'I can dry it off here at kitchen. "'You don't take a drop of nothing, do you?' "'No,' said Alvina. "'I don't like it. "'So much a bit stronger in bottle, my sake's alive. "'Well, you mun a fling like rest. "'But come now, which one on em is it? "'I catch sight of him going out, but I didn't make out which one of em it was. <laughs> it's a pity you don't take a drop of nothing. It's a world's pity. Is it fairest on em, the tallest? No, said Alvina, the darkest one. Oh, aye. Well's a strappin' enough feller for them as goes that road. I thought Madame was particular. I shall charge her a bit more, you know. I shall have to make a bit out of it. I'm particular as a rule. I don't like em coming in and going out, you know. Things get said. You look so quiet, you do. Come now. It's worth extra quart to me, else I shan't have it. I shan't. You can't make as free as all that with the house, you know. Be what it may. She stood red-faced and dour in the doorway. Alvina quietly gave her half a sovereign. Nay, lass, said the woman. If you share never a drop of flashings, you mun split it. Five shillings is oceans, my wench. I'm not down on you, not me. Only we've got to keep up appearances a bit, you know. Dash my rags, it's a caution. "'I haven't got five shillings,' said Alvina. "'You have not. "'All right, give half a crown to-day, and another to-morrow. "'It'll keep. "'It'll keep. "'God bless you for a good wench. 
open heart's worth all your bum righteousness. Tis for me, and a sight more. You're all right, my wench, you're all right. And the rather bleary woman went nodding away. Alvina ought to have minded, but she didn't. She even laughed into her rickety mirror. At the back of her thoughts, all she minded was that Chicho did not pay her some attention. She really expected him now to come to speak to her, if she could have imagined how far he was from any such intention. So she loitered unwillingly at her window, high over the grey, hard, cobbled street, and saw her landlady hastening along the black asphalt pavement, her dirty apron thrown discreetly over what was most obviously a quart jug. She followed the squat, intent figure with her eye to the public-house at the corner, and then she saw Chicho humped over his yellow bicycle, going for a steep and perilous ride with Gigi. Still she lingered in her sordid room. She could feel Madame was expecting her, but she felt inert, weak, incommunicative. Only a real fear of offending Madame drove her down at last. Max opened the door to let her in. "'Ah!' he said. "'You've come!' "'We were wondering about you.' "'Thank you,' she said, as she passed into the dirty hall where still two bicycles stood. "'Madame is in the kitchen,' he said. Alvina found Madame trussed in a large white apron, busy rubbing a yellow-fleshed hen with lemon previous to boiling. "'Ah!' said Madame. "'So there you are. I have been out and done my shopping, and already begun to prepare the dinner. "'Yes, you may help me. Can you wash leeks? Yes. Every grain of sand?' "'Shall I trust you, then?' Madame usually had a kitchen to herself in the morning. She either ousted her landlady or used her as second cook. For Madame was a gourmet, if not gourmand. If she inclined towards self-indulgence in any direction, it was in the direction of food. She loved a good table. And hence the Tawaras saved less money than they might. She was an exacting, tormenting, bullying cook.' Alvina, who knew well enough how to prepare a simple dinner, was offended by Madame's exactions. Madame turning back the green leaves of a leek, and hunting a speck of earth down into the white, like a flea in a bed, was too much for Alvina. "'I'm afraid I shall never be particular enough,' she said. "'Can't I do anything else for you?' "'For me? I need nothing to be done for me. But for the young men, yes, I will show you in one minute.' And she took Alvina upstairs to her room, and gave her a pair of the thin leather trousers fringed with hair belonging to one of the braves a seam had ripped madame gave alvina a fine awl and some waxed thread the leather is not good in these things of gigi's she said it is badly prepared see like this and she showed alvina another place where the garment was repaired keep on your apron at the weekend you must fetch more clothes not spoil this beautiful gown of voile where have you left your diamonds what in your room are they locked oh my dear madame turned pale and darted looks of fire at alvina if they are stolen she cried oh i've become quite weak hearing you she panted and shook her head if they are not stolen you are the holy saints alone to be thankful for keeping them but run run and madame really stamped her foot bring me everything you've got everything that is valuable I shall lock it up. How can you? Avina was hustled off to her lodging. Fortunately, nothing was gone. She brought all to Madame, and Madame fingered the treasures lovingly. Now what you want, you must ask me for, she said. With what close curiosity, Madame examined the ruby brooch. 
"'You can have that if you like, madame,' said Alvina. "'You mean, what?' "'I will give you that brooch, if you like to take it.' "'Give me this!' cried madame, and a flash went over her face. Then she changed into a sort of wheedling. "'No, no, I shan't take it. I shan't take it. You don't want to give away such a thing?' "'I don't mind,' said Alvina. "'Do take it, if you like it.' "'Oh, no! Oh, no! I can't take it. A beautiful thing it is, really. It would be worth over a thousand francs, because I believe it is quite genuine.' "'I'm sure it's genuine,' said Alvina. "'Do have it, since you like it.' "'Oh, I can't! I can't!' "'Yes, do. The beautiful red stones, antique gems, antique gems, and do you really give it to me?' "'Yes, I should like to.' "'You are a girl with a noble heart.' Madame threw her arms round Alvina's neck and kissed her. Alvina felt very cool about it. Madame locked up the jewels quickly, after one last look. "'My fowl,' she said, "'which must not boil too fast.' At length Alvina was called down to dinner. The young men were at table, talking as young men do, not very interestingly. After the meal, Chicho sat and twanged his mandoline, making its crying noise vibrate through the house. "'I shall go and look at the town,' said Alvina. "'And who shall go with you?' asked Madame. "'I'll go alone,' said Alvina. "'Unless you will come, Madame.' "'Alas, no, I can't. I can't come. Will you really go alone?' "'Yes, I want to go to the women's shops,' said Alvina. "'You want to? All right, then. And you will come home at tea-time, yes?' As soon as Alvina had gone out, Chicho put away his mandoline and lit a cigarette. Then, after a while, he hailed Geoffrey, and the two young men sallied forth. Alvina, emerging from a draper's shop in Rotherhampton Broadway, found them loitering on the pavement outside, and they strolled along with her. So she went into a shop that sold ladies' underwear, leaving them on the pavement. She stayed as long as she could, but there they were when she came out. They had endless lounging patience. "'I thought you would be gone on,' she said. "'No hurry,' said Chicho and he took away her parcels from her, as if he had a right. She wished he wouldn't tilt the flap of his black hat over one eye, and she wished there wasn't quite so much waistline in the cut of his coat, and that he didn't smoke cigarettes against the end of his nose in the street. But wishing wouldn't alter him. He strayed alongside as if he half belonged and half didn't, most irritating. She wasted as much time as possible in the shops, then they took the tram home again, Chicho paid the three fares, laying his hand restrainingly on Gigi's hand when Gigi's hand sought pence in his trouser pocket, and throwing his arm over his friend's shoulder in affectionate but vulgar triumph when the fares were paid. Alvina was on her high horse. They tried to talk to her, they tried to ingratiate themselves, but she wasn't having any. She talked with icy pleasantness, and so the tea-time passed, and the time after tea. The performance went rather mechanically at the theatre, and the supper at home, with bottled beer and boiled ham, was a conventionally cheerful affair. Even Madame was a little afraid of Alvina this evening. "'I'm tired. I shall go early to my room,' said Alvina. "'Yes, I think we are all tired,' said Madame. "'Why is it?' said Max, metaphysically. "'Why is it that two merry evenings never follow one behind the other?' "'Max, beer makes thee a farceur of a fine quality,' said Madame. Alvina rose. "'Please don't get up,' she said to the others. "'I have my key and can see quite well,' she said. 
Good night, all. They rose and bowed their good nights, but Chicho, with an obstinate and ugly little smile on his face, followed her. Please don't come, she said, turning at the street door. But obstinately he lounged into the street with her. He followed her to her door. Did you bring the flashlight, she said. The stair is so dark. He looked at her and turned as if to get the light. Quickly she opened the house door and slipped inside, shutting it sharply in his face. He stood for some moments looking at the door, and an ugly little look mounted his straight nose. He too turned indoors. Alvina hurried to bed and slept well, and the next day the same. She was all icy pleasantness. The Natchiquee Tawaras were a little bit put out by her. She was a spoke in their wheel, a scotch to their facility. She made them irritable. And that evening, it was Friday, Chicho did not rise to accompany her to her house, and she knew they were relieved that she had gone. That did not please her. The next day, which was Saturday, the last and greatest day of the week, she found herself again somewhat of an outsider in the troop. The tribe had assembled in its old unison. She was the intruder, the interloper, and Chicho never looked at her, only showed her the half-averted side of his cheek, on which was a slightly jeering, ugly look. "'Will you go to Woodhouse tomorrow?' Madame asked her, rather coolly. They none of them called her Allais any more. "'I'd better fetch some things, hadn't I?' said Alvina. "'Certainly, if you think you will stay with us.' This was a nasty slap in the face for her, but— "'I want to,' she said. "'Yes, then you will go to Woodhouse tomorrow, and come to Mansfield on Monday morning. Like that it shall be. You will stay one night at Woodhouse.' Through Alvina's mind flitted the rapid thought, "'They want an evening without me.' Her pride mounted obstinately. She very nearly said, "'I may stay in Woodhouse altogether,' but she held her tongue. After all, they were very common people. They ought to be glad to have her. Look how Madame snapped up that brooch. And look what an uncouth lout Chicho was. After all, she was demeaning herself shamefully of staying with them in common, sordid lodgings. After all, she had been bred up differently from that. They had horribly low standards. Such low standards, not only of morality, but of life altogether. Really, she had come down in the world, conforming to such standards of life. She evoked the images of her mother and Miss Frost, ladies and noble women both. Whatever could she be thinking of herself? However, there was time for her to retrace her steps. She had not given herself away, except to Chicho, and her heart burned when she thought of him, partly with anger and mortification, partly, alas, with undeniable and unsatisfied love. Let her bridle as she might, her heart burned, and she wanted to look at him, she wanted him to notice her, and instinct told her that he might ignore her for ever. She went to her room, an unhappy woman, and wept and fretted till morning, chafing between humiliation and yearning. End of chapter 9, part 2 Read by Tony Foster